Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And in honor of our guest today, I'm wearing a very patriotic donkey, red, white, and blue. And um, we're hoping that our guest is going to be able to join us very soon. But as Victor will tell you, traffic today in Washington is really terrible. He had a wonderful day in Washington and almost missed this show because of traffic. I almost missed this show. I was supposed to be on um, another show, but unfortunately that got canceled and I was in traffic. I got out, was going to go to the train station, but then got a call saying that um, I didn't have to go on. So I rushed back over here. Um, and the reason why I'm in D.C. is because of the Respect for Marriage Act signing. And that was a very, um, it was a cold day and we were all outside, but it was it was great to see everyone, saw some old friends um, and met some new people. And it was a great time and saw some old iGen guests. Uh, Senator Doug Jones was there and he said that um, he still watches uh, some episodes of ours. So um, Senator Jones was there and then other people were there and there Michael is. So um, I'm going to get right into um, the introduction. Yeah. So, hey, hey guys, uh, how you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, we're good. We're so glad you're here. We understand things are really crazy in D.C. today. Are you in D.C. now? Uh, no, I just I just left out of the city and uh, I'm on my cell phone. So I'm going to switch to my desktop because that way I have a real professional camera. Good, because and- I'm on my cell phone and looking <laughs> awful, but that's okay. My well, my computer problem is wasn't I got no place to put it. <laughs> <laughs> No, no problem. Well, we can we can do the introduction. And then- We're going to introduce you. Yeah, go ahead, Victor. Yeah. Um, so you've heard Jill and me talk a lot about our differences and our generational differences. And to me, one of the biggest uh, generational differences is how both political parties operated during Jill's era compared to right now. Um, right. During Watergate, Republicans and Democrats agreed on the facts and the solutions. They agreed on the need for Richard Nixon to leave office. They stood up to wrongdoing. But now that seems long gone. Um, consider moments like Trump's attempt to overthrow the results of a free and fair election in 2020 through violence, fake electors, pressures, uh, pressuring his VP and state legislatures, his call to Georgia to change votes. Um, there are just so many things that Republicans and Trump has done uh, that do not kind of live up to facts and truth um, or, you know, all of the racist, anti-Semitic and bigoted things that come out of Trump's mouth and those he invites for dinner. And so today we're going to explore all of this with our guest who, you know, Michael Steele and where the Republican Party goes from here. And before I introduce Michael Steele, I want to apologize for my voice and if I end up sniffling during the show. But I have, for the first time, been diagnosed as COVID positive. Uh, I have no idea where I got it, but I'm not suffering. I have, oh, basically it would be a cold in any other day, but um, because I was supposed to be with people, I tested and found out I was positive, so I am quarantining. But Michael seems to be mostly with us now, and I, I think I figured it out. <laughs> that, that's more than I could do because I'm still on my phone. But Michael is our esteemed guest. He is, of course, well known to you all as an MSNBC commentator. He is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. He served in that role from 2009 to 2011 uh, during the Obama administration. Before that, Michael was the lieutenant governor of Maryland, and he now hosts his own podcast, the Michael Steele Podcast, as well as being an MSNBC political analyst, where I know you all have enjoyed his great commentary about all things political. I actually first met Michael. He was my first really 
prominent, famous person that I met. And I don't know if he'll remember this, but we were in the green room at the Politicon convention in 2017. And I'm actually pretty shy, but I sort of made myself walk up to him and say hello. And he was so gracious. I was impressed then. And nothing has happened since then that makes me not impressed with Michael Steele. So thank you for being nice to me at my first Politicon. And thanks for joining us on the show today. Absolutely, Jill. I, I do remember that. I thought we'd actually met before that, but I guess now that you think mention it, yeah, I guess that probably yeah. wasn't the time. I met you and I met Roger Stone the same <laughs> day because he was on my panel, about which I was pretty panicked, as you might imagine. Great. I deal in fact, he deals in <laughs> you know, whatever. So it was like, I, what did Politicon have in mind when they put me with him? But they also added James Carvel who also, yeah. of course, has a Politicon podcast now. And I figured, well, James will take care of all the nonsense. I'll deal with the facts. And so the program was pretty good, I'd say. We, 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 did, we did good. But yes. anyway, thanks for being here, Michael. My pleasure. No, it's great to be with both of you. And uh, it's good to see you again, Jill. And Victor, of course, uh, Victor and I are becoming like old souls in a shoe here together. We're, you know, foot, right foot. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, we've been together so much over the last couple of weeks, but I, I appreciate both of you and especially uh, the incredibly important work um, that our Gen, our Gen Zs are doing out there uh, with Victor and so many others who are uh, paving a way that uh, uh, changes the discourse as well as the direction of politics. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. And it's it's really an intergenerational effort as this podcast is titled. So let's get started because I, I, you know, I and a lot of young people who only see the Republican Party, I think we see it through the lens of the likes of Trump. And so I, I want to know what you, I guess, what the Republican Party was like when you first started leading it. Well, you know, that's an excellent question. And I, I'm glad you framed it that way, because I people stop looking at it through that lens because there are a lot of us out here who know better and are trying to do better. But the way it, the, you know, the way it uh, started out for me, uh, look, I grew up in Washington, D.C., heavily Democratic city, Democratic family. Uh, I had an aunt who was a Republican on my dad's side. And, you know, I didn't understand why people didn't invite her to Thanksgiving. But I, I grew up to figure out why. <laughs> um, but no, I'm just kidding. No, my aunt, she She's a great lady, still is. Um, but the, you know, it was a different time and a different climate for sure. Um, the the quality of leadership was a thousand percent better than it is now. Uh, yeah, we all got to understand and do the politics, but people recognize that the important thing was service to the country, commitment to your responsibilities as an elected official. So I, I grew up and watched a lot of men and women in that space in the party. Um, the political philosophy appealed to me. You know, I understood and appreciated after my mom told me, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Go out and research it and decide for yourself. And I did. And I realized mm -hmm. the Republican Party was the political home for African-Americans. This is where we started. This is where we found our political voice and, and got our initial footing. First Black uh, elected public officials were Republican, um, certainly in the South. And, and, and then that began to spread uh, and grow uh, until Jim Crow killed it in many respects. Um, but I understood, I understood where the party's history was with respect to my community. And I respected that. Um, 
yeah, there was stuff that you could, you know, quibble about a Reagan or a Nixon here and there. But Nixon was very popular among African-Americans um, back in the day. Um, and, um, and a lot of it had to do with his leadership on affirmative action. Uh, affirmative action was born out of his administration. Um, and, and, the, and the commitment that was made uh, not just by him, but by, you know, others that sort of spoke to uh, the journey that African-Americans were on. A lot of us disappointed that the party by large broke away from the civil rights agenda uh, in the main, but <clears throat> still recognized uh, the political connection. And so it's very different from today where that connection doesn't really exist. Um, you're told to, to be about one man and one man's business. You watch the sycophantic, uh, you know, troglodytes in the party kind of uh, follow behind him like, you know, a puppy, a forlorn puppy looking for someone to own it. Um, and that that is not an appealing uh, image for a lot of 17-year-old uh, uh, potential Republicans uh, today, such as, you know, I was at the time when I was 17. But so let so, me ask you a follow up to that, because, first of all, whatever the Republican Party was at the time of President Lincoln, by the time you were of voting age, it wasn't that party. I mean, I understood from what I've read about you that, you know, you were fiscally conservative, but socially inclusive. So that would be a very different kind of Republican than there is now, maybe more in the Rockefeller uh, mold um, and some others, but sure. how did you overcome the fact that you've mentioned civil rights as as a major issue? The fact that the Republicans have always voted against civil rights—that it took real—I I wouldn't say always. Uh, for <laughs> they were proponents well, of in recent in my lifetime. In my right. lifetime, it's been the Democrats who have supported civil rights. So that's your lifetime too. Um, but, but, and yes. and so, uh, oh, the the sixty four Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were 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 sponsored and pushed forward uh, by Republicans in the Senate. Would not have happened if it weren't for Republicans in the Senate working with the Johnson administration. Remember when Johnson embraced the Kennedy agenda on civil rights. Uh, white right. Southern Democrats left the party in droves. There was a reason why Kennedy went to went to Texas, Dallas, Texas, that fateful November. It wasn't because, oh, gee, I like Texas. It was because he was having a problem with yes. these, these white segregationists in the Democratic Party as he was leaning in towards civil rights. Um, so, you know, the, the party made a political decision with respect to how it would win the White House. And they recognized that mm -hmm. that journey was through the South. The Democrats controlled the South. And if you wanted to get to the White House, you had to go through Texas and Alabama and Mississippi, et cetera. So there was this political decision. Uh, once, we, once the vote on civil rights was done by 65, Nixon did his calculation and said, look, um, there's, we got to figure out how to take advantage of this opportunity. And the, 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 cynic, the cynicism and the cynics mm -hmm. um, came up with this strategy that embraced uh, what we call today the Southern strategy that embraced those Southern white men. That 
that particular seed has germinated into what we see today. Um, and and so, you know, you, you're right. Set up, uh, Jill, a, a, a political clash between uh, the Rockefeller, uh, Eisenhower, Bush, Lincoln Republicans, and those who mm-hmm. saw politics more crassly and more um, opportunistically um, and figured they could jettison the black vote because there were more white men to get. Right. And I, I of course, still remember when there was real intellectual debates between Democrats and Republicans, when bipartisanship meant that there was compromise and accomplishment. But I also am someone who listened to Richard Nixon's tapes. And so I know what a bigot he was. I know how how horrible he was. And that, I, I suppose, has maybe changed my impression of the goodness and badness of of the Republican well, Party since Nixon. Like listening to the Johnson tapes. <laughs> Johnson didn't love black yeah. people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Let's be clear. All right. So And we, and he was a misogynist. Huh? <laughs> that's true. What was that? He, he he on tapes where he says honey to Catherine Graham. I mean, <laughs> really? Ooh. Right. Yeah. Johnson was a was an absolute segregationist. He was not about embracing black people uh, and having them over for dinner. So you know what you see is in both of these political institutions, you have caught between them the the struggle, the difficulty in dealing with the reality of yeah. the black experience in this in this wonderful experiment we call America. Neither party has gotten it right. Um, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, had, had their assortment of KKK leaders um, in, in elected office in the United States Senate, for God's sake. Republicans today um, seem to embrace that same form of white nationalism because they don't know how to deal with, um, you know, the, the, the truth of, of the black experience. And so you have one that want to patronize blacks with respect to that experience and the other that wants to ignore it or denigrate it. And, and so that, that sets a very interesting dynamic in place politically that we've seen play out over the last political cycles where the savior of the Democratic Party has been black women. <laughs> and there's so much irony in that on in so many levels. But it is the it is the way blacks have sort of played out their role um, inside the politics. And for me as a young man, I had an appreciation of that at an early stage. I've never been a follower. I've never been very good at saying, everybody go this way. I'm like, okay, why? And do you know what's around that corner? You know, that's kind of how I come at it. Um, and so when I saw as a young man, yes, there was a ugly toward history um, with Republicans, um, but the same is true with Democrats. I still rest back on the on the on the idea that it was Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln who was who was frail when it came to uh, at least initially embracing this idea of uh, of 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 creating opportunity and um, stenching the the tide of of, of uh, racism not racism but uh, slavery. Um, yeah. 
but yet and still um, followed the idea and, and, and believed in it enough and listened to people like Frederick Douglass enough to understand how this party uh, could orient itself. And that's why I call myself a Lincoln Republican because of that, that sense of the individual liberty, the individual rights that, um, that were born out of the struggle um, that manifest themselves in our constitution, uh, the laws, um, and hopefully uh, the politics. Although so, Lincoln was really more for saving the union right. than for freeing the slaves. Right. So, um, and, and you've just mentioned something that's very similar between you and Victor in not being a follower. His parents are Republicans and he has <laughs> gone the other way, as you know. So. Right. So, I mean, going back, so we know that the Republican Party has strayed away pretty far from those ideals of Lincoln and, and um, other Republicans. Did you sense this when you were the chair of the Republican Party, um, that it was going oh, further yeah. from what it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's some, again, I think people need to understand and contextualize yeah. this appropriately. What we saw under Trump and Trumpism wasn't something that just popped up in 2015. Yeah. That goes back to the late 50s. It goes back to the 30s. There's a long, there's a long strain of, and as I said to Jill a little bit earlier, that tension between the, the sort of northern established, establishment Republicans who didn't care, who had much more of an egalitarian, sort of a libertarian view of of culture and society you do you boo right and we won't get involved unless the government does yeah. right then yeah. we'll have something to say yeah. so things on you know, who you marry who you love where you live all that stuff we didn't want to touch that because that was an individual choice one two such things were ultimately decided at the state level which is the canard in this cycle, in this period, when you hear Republicans on abortion say, oh, yeah, we want to the, the leave it to the states. We've always believed that the state should handle it. And the minute Roe versus Wade is overturned, what do they revert to? Oh, you know what? We need to impose a federal national ban. Yep. Really? For 50 years, you've been telling us leave it to the states. Now that the states have a chance to make these decisions state by state, where well, you're going to get a patchwork. Yep. Texas is going what? to say, oh, New York is going to say yes. Right. So we understand that. Now you want to put in place a federal ban. So the, the, the party has always had this struggle um, that has been exacerbated over time by the introduction, again, going back to what Jill and I were talking about before, um, the, the Southern strategy. Jill, you and I recall, um, even, as, even as young tykes uh, and I'm learning uh, about the John Birch Society and what, what the party had do to kind of fend off that that in the early 60s. Then, of course, the moral majority in the 1980s, this sort of evangelical right-wing, you know, Christian nationalism uh, that is sort of boiled over into a hot mess um, that in total contravention of the Constitution and its principles. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I had to contend with as a chairman trying to find that balance inside the party. I can try to win some elections. So, I'm so glad that you recognize the hypocrisy of the current attempts to nationalize things that were, oh, that's a state's right issue. Yeah. We want the states to decide it. Okay, so now the states can decide it. Oh, yeah, except for the ones that would go the other way from how we feel. <laughs> um, 
But um, you were the first black person to lead the party. And I'm assuming that that made your job harder, but that it also opened doors for many other people to say, well, he looks a lot like me. Maybe this is a home for me. Did you have the sense of it being harder for you, but of being worth it because you could attract more people to the party, make it a more open party? So it's so funny that you you actually frame that question that way because it has been one of the more amusing aspects of of being the being the first black chairman. So let me just address part A. Part A is the difficult. Yes, it is difficult to be the first at anything. Yeah, Bill, you know that as as a woman lawyer, nineteen seventies and eighties. Come on. You know, you know what that partnership track was like. It didn't include your name, right? So you know what it is when you finally break that barrier. Um, uh, what that's what that means, not just for you personally, but for the women who are looking at you and coming behind you, and actually working and serving with you. The same is true for you, Victor. In in what you're doing, young today, um, as a young Asian American, is going to change the landscape. But being out front. Uh, in that sort of first capacity, yeah, there's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of bull that comes with it, but that's where you need to be focused and oriented. So the part B, um, Bill, (laughs) goes to what happened on the day I got elected. So I I get elected and everybody's all abuzz and gaga. It reminds me later, in hindsight, it reminds me of uh, my tenure at the RNC, reminds me of being in Jurassic Park when Jeff Goldblum, when they're taking the tour of the park, he says, yes, oh, yes, look at all the laughing and playing. Next comes the running and screaming. You know, is that that kind of, of Yeah. Now, but when I, when I put your ass to work, you may not be so happy with me. When I tell you this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, which board out. But on that day, I was asked, uh, I was leaving, leaving, coming back into the hall, and one of the RNC members was coming out, someone I'd known a long time, nice, nice woman. She comes out, she gives me a big hug, and she looks at me, she goes, I'm so excited. Now Blacks will join the Republican Party. And I looked at her, and I said, thank you, but I'm not a Pied Piper. You know, blacks aren't going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, oh, they done made a brother chairman. I think I'm going to go join. No, they're going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, they made a brother chairman. Damn, he's stupid, right? That's <laughs> where the conversation's going to go. <laughs> it's not, folks aren't going to be falling over themselves and become Republican. That's why we have to do the work. Yeah. That's yeah. why we have to have a message that resonates with them where they see themselves reflected in the values of the party as well as the people of the party. Um, and the party, uh, we tried, and I think we were very successful at least in getting a number of Asian, African-American, women, Hispanics elected in the 2010 cycle. Um, you know, from Zana Martinez uh, as governor, uh, to Tim um, uh, Scott, to the Congress. Um, so, you know, we, we had, we had uh, a mission where my goal was to make the party, and I, you know, I, I coined this phrase hip-hop Republican at the time, and everyone laughed at me, and I said, no, y'all can laugh, you white folks can laugh, 
But the brothers are paying attention. Okay, what do you mean by that, right? And the point was for a chance for the party to express and speak uh, about the things that you're concerned about in this culture, within the culture, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there, there was a lot about it. But yeah, that moment. This made me when you said when you asked that question, it flashed back to that moment where it's like, oh yeah, now blacks are joining the party. I'm like, no, they won't. <laughs> We've got to do the work. Well, so, I, I do think though that being the first, you're right, it definitely presents hurdles, but it does allow others to see that it is possible for something. You're right, of course, in the case of joining a political party, it has to represent your values. Um, so I Maybe talk about what you did to make the values those that would welcome a diverse population into the Republican Party. Well, it just showed up. Uh, my first official trip was to do a, a round table in Harlem. And the members, some of the members resented it and resisted it and criticized me for spending the money to do it. And I'm like, OK, this is about uh, seven to ten thousand dollars to do this. And we're going to be in Harlem, people. Follow me here, all right. Just keep up. Um, and but yeah, it's 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 hard. Um, it's it, I guess in one sense, Jill, uh, when you when you step back, yeah, you can be that person that someone on the outside looking and say, yes, it's possible, until they see what they do to you, <laughs> until they see what they put you through, until they see the BS got to deal with because you don't sound act or move the way they do one of the one of the things that i you know wanted to make you very clear right out of the box is national chairman is like y'all know i'm black right <laughs> when i wake up in the morning this is <laughs> all right i don't know what you see <laughs> i see all right? so when i go to my starbucks guess who they see this okay <laughs> And so if I'm out of <laughs> from a brand sounding stupid to my community, guess what? I'm losing my black my black car, right? And I can't afford to do that as a black man, right? I just can't. So that's how that works. But you know, I had fun with it, trying to help them out. But they were like, the expert, you know, I had people criticize what I wore. Why well, why do you wear so many different colors? Because I like them. <laughs> <laughs> I like God. get over it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but wow. I, that's like my not getting a trial at first and having to go to my boss and say, "How come?" And he said, "Well, because because you're a girl." I went, "Like, what didn't you notice when you hired me as a trial lawyer?" <laughs> exactly. Was it the hair? You know, was it <laughs> what? What didn't you get? What part didn't you get? So yeah, it's it's it is something that. Um, I think all of us, and not just for black people, but for all of us, even for you know some of the white men I know who've had had certain experiences because you know they're gay or they look a certain way or they act a certain way. Everyone has a stereotype about what they want you to be, mm. and the the challenge and i think actually the responsibility that each of us has is to debunk that <laughs> wow I, it is not so i, I want to have a, a whole separate episode of this podcast 
talking about just this subject and about when I took over the American Bar Association and didn't look like their yeah. image of the profession. But that's that that's let's let's do that as a separate one because that would be a really interesting conversation. Obviously, I hadn't seen the similarities, but now I do. But yeah. Victor, I know you had a question. Yeah, go ahead, Victor. Well, I mean, when you mentioned that the party needed to bring in more diverse voices and 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 groups, I mean, I can't help but think about that 2012 um, autopsy report after the 2012 election that urged the party to do just that, do a better job of bringing in diverse voices and racial minorities, um, which is something I want to ask you about as it relates to the midterm elections. But first, I mean, did you sense that was a problem when you were RNC chair too? No. I didn't need to spend a million dollars to figure out what the problem was. We just <laughs> lost 2006 to 2008. We lost. Yeah. Okay, that's the problem. <laughs> then the next <laughs> problem is, okay, how did we lose? Where did we lose? Yeah. Why did we lose? Who did we lose to, right? I didn't need to spend money to do that. I was a county, state, and national chairman. Yeah. I had a pretty good sense of how things were going inside the party which always befuddled me why rights would go out and spend all this damn money <laughs> to figure out what to do when we had figured it out and started doing it. So he comes in behind me, throws everything out, the coalition work that we built, 300, 348 people network across the country, right? Including some Democrats who are working with the Republican Party, right? Just yeah. talk, tore it up. And then 2012, they get that they're behind handed to them and it's like, oh, let's sit down and let's put a group together and figure out what happened. But here's the thing. They spend the money. They get the report. The report tells them you got a Hispanic problem. You got a black problem. You got a woman problem. And laundry lists all these problems. And then two years later, three years later, they let Donald Trump come down that damn escalator, stand in front of the country and go, you know what? Hispanics, Mexicans, ah, they're murderers, killers, rapists. I'm going to build a wall to keep them out. Muslims, eh, guess no, we're not allowing anyone to come in if they're Muslim. <laughs> Tear that ish up, right? Yeah. So It's hard to believe that it's only 10 years from the time of the 2012 autopsy to now, uh, because it seems like, in a way, like it's had to have been longer than that to get to where the party is now. Whatever was wrong back then is a different problem now, don't you think? I mean, how did the Republican enable Donald Trump to be their candidate? Well, it's some of the same problem. I mean, Rana's about to spend all this money. She got this group together to do a review. Didn't want to call it an autopsy. Wanted to do a review on what happened in 2022. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what happened in 2022. Mitch McConnell told you what happened in 2022. The yeah. public told you what happened in 2022. You need to spend the money. Again, excuse me, you need to do the work. And yeah. the work requires that you jettison all the crap that you've engaged in over the last six years do the mea culpa to the to the country, apologize for looking at January 6th as just political discourse, right? Shut the friggin' Freedom Caucus crazy up about, you know, election denials and QAnon and 
investigations to nowhere about nothing. Lay out an agenda on how you want to govern the nation. And set up set up the argument of why my policy is better than Joe Biden's policy. Why we think this way is better than that way. But they're not going to do that. So it's the same problem. They don't want to address it. They well, don't address it because they know to address it, they're going to have a third of, the, of their base go, well, we're done with you. You know what I say to them? Don't let the door hit you in the ass fast enough for <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I wish every single Republican was as outspoken and as just honest about the current state as you are. But we, we saw this during the campaign, during 2016, during 2020, his presidency, and even now Trump saying so many absurd things that every elected official, I, I think, regardless of party, should be speaking. I mean, it's not hard, but they don't. And I'm wondering why you think that is, because what you said, I think, is completely accurate. And these Republicans just don't seem to be you know, speaking out and, and what do you think it will take to get them to do that? But why don't they do it? Because they are chicken. They're afraid of being told, we don't like you anymore. We're not going to vote for you anymore. We're not going to give you money anymore. Okay. Go through that pain. You're going to be stronger on the other side of it. You know why? Because you'll still have a spine. And you'll still have your integrity and your dignity intact. And you'll still be able to look voters in the eye and go, you know what? Yeah, that's a little crazy over there. We don't do that. We do you. We do what the American people are about. Um, and we're willing to take that risk in that fight. But they're not. They're not. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene is set up to be the most powerful person along with Jim Jordan and a few others, Matt Gates, in the House come January of next year. I'm not saying that. They're saying that. They're telling you that. Why do you think, Kevin, everything he does, he's got little Marjorie behind him, standing behind him, looking over his shoulder like, uh-huh, now make sure you say the right thing. While he tries to find 218 votes he's not going to get. While he's trying to be speaker when Donald Trump comes out, oh, I don't know, a week before the vote and go, you know, I just don't think he's the right guy for the job. What you gonna do then, boo? I mean, the reality of it is leadership requires you take a risk. Leadership requires that you look constituents in the face and go, I just can't do that because, explain yourself. They're not willing to do that. When you have people who know, who, who told you in 2015 and 16 that Donald Trump was a bag of crap yeah. and that he would be the ruination of the party, now sitting on his lap, waiting for him to tell them what they're to say next, what do you think is going to happen? What happens to that party? What does it become? Oh, it loses a lot of elections which is what's been happening since about 2018. And it will continue to happen for as long as it, they do this. You know, now the battle, oh, you know, Governor DeSantis, oh, that's our wonderful flavor of the day. Okay. If you like sour candy, I guess, because um, hey, that's not going to wear well either. Yeah. I mean, how, do, how do you promote someone to be president who wants to burn books and ban them?
How do you promote someone for president who wants to tell tell gay kids and adults you have no value in my state? How, how do you how do you do that? Yeah. So, well, is there any chance for this to happen? I mean, even with the losses the party just suffered, I mean, the statistics on how incredible it is that the Democrats gained in the Senate and only lost a few seats in the House should be a message that says we got to do something. Is there anyone in the Republican Party who's in leadership who will do that? Anyone? I, I like the way you the way the, the way you hedged that you you did it the right way in leadership because it's going to take the leadership that's going to actually have to throw down the gauntlet here. It just did, Jill. You know this. You and you and I've been in the rooms. You know what that's like. You know you know what leadership is like in the room, right? It's the same in the room and outside the room, right? In a tough moment, it just is. And when you can't walk out and stand in front of a bank of microphones and say what you're saying inside the room in a, on an important matter, so you don't sit in a room with a bunch of other Republicans and go, oh, Donald Trump is such a pain in the ass. Oh, my God, I just wish he'd go away. We cannot stay hooked on this. And then go out in front of the bank of microphones and say, the Republican Party can't survive without Donald Trump. I mean, it just, it's, not, it's beyond not credible. So I don't know who that is. Who's willing to take that risk? Who's willing to put their, you know, we saw what they did to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and the, and the eight other members who voted for impeachment, who stood on principle, who were on the right, not just yeah. on the right side of history, but on the right side of the law. <laughs> <laughs> but is he even really running? I mean, he's announced. No. But he, okay, so you think he's not? He's, no. Okay, so the Republicans have no governing policy. They don't have an agenda to help America. They want to investigate ridiculous things. And he's announced but isn't really a candidate. So where are they? <laughs> yeah. You, you just summed it up. Oh. <laughs> that is. <laughs> it is nowhere near civilization. <laughs> and, and they need you. They need you. But I don't want you to go back to them because they're not worth you. They, they won't accept me back because they, they don't they don't want the medicine they have to take. Look, I get it. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Never have been. Just ask my mama and my wife, right? <laughs> we, we want that. But the reality of it is, um, I do believe I, be, I believe fundamentally in the principle of the thing. I do do believe your word should be your bond. I do believe you stand up for right and might. I do believe that you you make it clear where you draw bright lines, right? And you defend those lines. Um, and when you're not willing to do that, that politi politics becomes much harder. I've, I've always found it when I was an elected official as Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, or when I was in a purely political slot as state chairman or national chairman, that I had to be true about who I was and what I did. Right. I, I just couldn't. I, you know, I had so many meetings where at the RNC, people were upset with me because they gave me a text to, to go out and say and I didn't say it. I said, well, it's because I don't believe it. <laughs> I'm not going to go out here and trash Barack Obama's birth because I don't believe it. It's bullshit. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to say it. 
And besides, getting back to the point I made a little bit earlier, when I go to my Starbucks and the brothers are standing there looking at me like, what'd you say about Barack? <laughs> I don't need that conversation. I don't need that heat because I know it's not true. Yeah. So why do I put myself through that? These people are putting themselves through crap about something they know isn't true. Yeah. So what does that tell you about them and their leadership? And so, yeah, the party's got a lot of work to do. I, I liken it uh, to this um, as a, what the party needs is a political enema. Clean it all out. And we got to go through that process. We got to go through what, the pain of it, the difficulty of it, the messiness of it, all of it. We got to go through it. Um, now, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a Republican Party <laughs> standing at the end of it. It'll be something. And it, and, well, let, and, yeah, let's talk about that in, in terms of what do you think the future for the Republican Party is? Is there any hope? Because I personally believe in the two party system. I liked when we had debates. I liked when we could talk about policies. And that's that's gone now. We just don't have it. So what is the future? And certainly Mike Lindell and, and Ron McDaniel, I don't think are the two best people to do that. Yeah, but that's the future. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. That's the future. Okay, so in that case, what advice do you have for Democrats? Because well, obviously the Republicans aren't listening to you. I'm glad you raised that point. <laughs> so Democrats need to understand the moment. Look, I get the argument about the value of a two-party system. I believe in that very much. But I also believe in expanding the opportunities in this two-party system because both parties don't want expansion. At the end of the day, they like it's just been the two of us. Like the two of us, I don't need a third. I don't need a fourth, just the two of us. But we do, we need to break, we need to create honesty and tension within the system to make people honest, uh, um, uh, pay attention and do the right thing. So there are a number of things that play to that. Uh, one is the work that we see around right uh, ranked choice voting, uh, final five voting, um, tools that can be used to engage not just the public, but hold the parties accountable and make them honest about the kind of candidates they're putting up, the, the messaging that they're delivering, and the voters that they're paying attention to, which is such an essential point. Um, vast numbers. You want to know why a significant portion of our voting population is checked out and is cynical and angry? It's because we've crapped all over them. We've ignored them. We didn't want them to participate in the, in, in the system because they weren't our voters. And so we refer to them as deplorables or we refer to them, you know, refer to them like, oh, we got to own the libs, right? It was because they're not our voters. So the shaking up the system is a good thing. We're 244, 47 years old, right? Something like that. We are young. We are young. You know, our partners are, you know, governments that have been in play for a thousand plus years, right? Um, so they've been through all of it. They look at us and go, uh, poor little Ting Ting. They'll figure it out, right? And, that, and, that, and we will. But despite being young, we know we're different because of how we value each other, at least how we used to value each other. Um, so yeah, the party, I'm all for a two party system, but I'm also for broadening the scope of what that looks like in the future, uh, to include more 
diverse points of view around a host of issues. For the Republican Party um, and for individuals like myself, look, I, you know, I call myself a Motel 6 Republican because someone's got to keep the lights on. Right. So we try we try to keep the lights on them out there, putting a new bulb in the porch light every every night. And some bastard keeps coming by shooting it out. Right. It's, it's, I keep finding another bulb to put in there. And there are a lot of us out there like that. Liz Cheney was one of those. He had, you know, three four bulbs at a time trying to light the way. Um, but they're going to there's going to come a point, guys, where we run out of bulbs. And the light stays out. Um, Are there any candidates on the Republican side who you think, because you've said you don't think Trump is really running, so someone's going to run from what is called the GOP. Who do you think that might be, and who do you think might be able to actually win? That That's a great question. Um, I don't know who, I know people who are looking at it and thinking about it, uh, but that is not the same as doing it. I think mm -hmm. folks are now assessing, going back to a point we were making earlier about whether or not Trump is actually running. They're trying to assess whether or not Trump is actually running um, and what that may mean. And if he is, how do we navigate that? How do we maneuver in that space? If he isn't, then, okay, it's a free for all, everybody into the pool. Um, and which that will, both, both those scenarios, by the way, are bloodbaths <laughs> because even without Trump, because the party in one sense, Jill, is beyond Trump. Trumpism is a is a feature now of the Republican Party. All right. So they don't need Trump really anymore. You, know, you hear what you're hearing now. I love this. This reminds me of the of of the people who used to say, well, I'm pro-life, but. You know, I, you know, I, I, I'm pro-life, but I'm like, okay, all right, whatever. Um, so now people say, uh, I like Trump's policies, but, well, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what policy you're trying to put your finger on because infrastructure, uh, outside of taxes, but you didn't benefit from that unless you're making over three, $4 million a year. Um, you know, so that's become the new thing. I like his policies, but, yeah. um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know who that, who that is going to be. There are going to be folks lining up, um, obviously, uh, who are some who want to press the fight like a Larry Hogan, others mm -hmm. who, uh, hope Trump, um, uh, is either in jail or otherwise incapacitated like, uh, DeSantis. Um, that sort of creates a clearer path for them. But for the Democrats, and I, and I do want to address that part of it, yeah. the Democrats have an opportunity here to make a case to the American people that is broad, broad and more inclusive than the one that they've been making. There are a whole lot of voters out there like me who look at the Democratic Party and go, well, guys, you don't want me because I believe this. And unless you're ready, it doesn't mean that you have to compromise on the things that you value. It's that you have to contextualize how other people fit into that, right? So you make, you make it important for them that, yes, we may disagree on taxes or we may disagree on abortion, but this is a space where you can find room to advocate for um, you know, changes in schools and, and, and school policy or changes in 
uh, environmental policy or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I know that's hard. It's hard because um, the Democrats have their own battle with their progressive wing. And no one wants to yeah. open that conversation or even have it. But trust me, if someone had to deal with the art, art conservative wing of my party, you want to get in front of that. Um, and it's not to say progressives are bad or their views are bad. Again, you've got to contextualize if you're a mainstream national party, you've got to figure out how to contextualize that. Because if you swing too hard one way or the other, it becomes more difficult to govern. And we saw a little bit of that over the last 18, 24 months with uh, the fight among Democrats over, you know, in the Biden administration just to figure out the filibuster rules, for God's sake. Mm. So I think this is another subject for another podcast is to talk about how do you talk to the MAGA wing of the Republican Party? How do you talk when facts don't matter? And maybe the same is true uh, from your perspective about how to talk to the progressive wing of the, the Democratic Party. Victor and I are both pretty middle of the road. We both ran as Biden delegates. I, because I still believe that bipartisanship and compromise are not dirty words. Um, and so, but I, I have tried to talk to Trumpers and I failed. I, I, because when you say to them, as you just earlier said, well, tell me what policy it is you like of his and how did it benefit you? They can't answer that question. And so it's, it's really... It's not about the policy. It's about the man. The man, right. And the whole move away from the, move into the, well, I like his policy, but I'm not crazy about him, is rationalization. Is how they can yeah. go, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I love his policies, but I'm not too crazy about him. Well, yeah. You well, are I hope there are Republicans listening to you right now and evaluating who they will support going forward and all the people who you may name, not just Trump, but all the people who were his enablers uh, to get to where he is now, uh, that needs attention. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we started off the podcast by talking about how young Michael got involved in politics. I'm wondering what you now say to uh, young Democrats and Republicans who uh, want to get involved in some way. It is a, it is a difficult journey. So be aware and prepared for that. Um, and what makes it difficult is that it is a uniquely personal journey. And it requires you to do the one thing that sometimes is very, very hard to do. And that is to be honest with yourself. If you don't know who you are, if you're not comfortable with that, then don't do this. Please don't do it. Because you're just going to make a mess of it for everybody, including yourself. Um, and a lot of bad things will come out of it. Um, I've seen it way too many times. Um, and some of the performative BS that we see from the Matt Gates of the world and the Marjorie Taylor Greens are people who were insecure or unsure about themselves. They're all over the map, you know? Uh, and, you know, it, it, so it, it's, it's important that you know that. Um, and then the second, once you know who you are, what you value, and why it's important to you, meaning that this is my line and I'm willing to fight on this line, then the question becomes, what do you do? 
how do you do it? What's your calling? Now I say that as a former seminarian, so I kind of look at things through that lens when it comes to this, but what are you being called to do? How, how do you want to actualize your service? If you believe in public service, as a lot of young people do, um, how do you want to make the net? If you want power for the sake of power, please stay out of politics. So we, it's, it's messed up enough. We don't need your stupid, right? We just don't. I'm sorry. We, we, we've seen too much of that. We don't need it. But if you're actually concerned about trying to get involved uh, in a legislature, whether it's state, local, or federal, um, serve in an executive role, again, state, local, or federal, then be about the business that is required from when you take that oath of office mm -hmm. and, and take on the responsibility of serving all of the people, not just the party or the tribe that you happen to be assigned to, that you have assigned yourself to. Um, and, and, and be about that good service because, you know, we're all called to do that, whether you are, you know, Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Hebrew, we're all called to do that, right? Um, look after each other, try to help each other, um, love each other, care for each other. Uh, that, that's, that's the work. And some of us in public service elevate that work so that it benefits, benefits everybody, not just the group over here in the corner where we happen to be. So be about that business um, if that's if that's who you are, going back to the first point. Um, and if it's not, then stay the hell out of the game because we don't need you. I think it's also important you mentioned the oath that you take when you go into public service. Yep. It is to serve the Constitution. Yep. And I wish that people would remember that it, as part of serving all the people, it is also the laws and the Constitution and that terminating the constitution is not allowed period no. Just not. <laughs> so to your point jill so everybody out there know when i got elected when i took the oath of office as lieutenant governor of maryland i swore an oath to my state constitution of maryland and to the federal constitution all right <laughs> that was a double whammy so when you take on the role of an elected official it is not. It is not this sort of uh, one-off. It is encompassing. It includes everything, state and federal. Um, and you don't get to go. Oh, you know what? Let's just chuck the U.S. Constitution because we don't need it. It's just you don't get to do that again. That's <laughs> what you're thinking. Then stay the hell out of the room. We don't need you. We, we, we're full. <laughs> we're good. We don't need you. Well, I wish there were more people like you in politics. Uh, I wish you were on the Democratic side, but I'm glad to have a decent thinking Republican who <laughs> could be representing them. Very true. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a great time talking with you. No, it was my pleasure. And look, we all got to work ahead of us. Let's yep. just knuckle down and do it. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, now. That was such a great episode, um, and I, I think just really captured the state of this Republican Party. Um, there's 
it's very hard to find anything that's legitimate and substantive substantive from this party anymore. And uh, Michael, I thought, was a great kind of speaker about that and um, contextualized it very well, I thought. Absolutely. It's just, it's sad that that's where we're at and that we need to really reform the party from scratch almost. Um, I mean, he, he didn't leave me much hope that there's anyone in the party now strong enough to stand up and, you know, really with the losses they've suffered, it's hard for me and particularly his hand chosen candidates. Um, and, and yet they're not doing anything to shut Carrie Lake up, for example, who's still an election denier, her own election. Um, it's really sad and it will uh, end up being something harmful to our constitution, to our democracy, to the way we elect. Um, and that doesn't even get to things like the filibuster or the electoral college, um, which are hurting our democracy for sure. Um, I, I, I was very happy to have that honest a conversation with someone. Uh, it was really enlightening and a pleasure, even though it was depressing. So I'd like to hear if any of our listeners have um, views that could give us more hope that the Republican Party can be a viable, uh, constructive force. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, you can always tweet to either Victor or me. Um, I'm at Jill Wine Banks on Twitter, and Victor is at VictorShe2020. Yes, please tweet us. Let us know what you thought of this conversation. Um, and we will see you again next week for another episode of iGen Politics. You can subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon. And be sure to like and share this video because I think it's one that every generation should be listening to no matter which party they're from. So uh, please share this and we will see you next week for another episode. Thanks so much for watching.